Hello and welcome to another solo episode of the ESG Fitness Podcast. This is another topic episode, hence why it's solo. After the podcast I did on what to expect when you gain weight and how to build muscle, which was episode 170, I think. So go back and listen to that one first if you're listening to this one. I mean, it'll still make sense, but it's this is kind of the follow on from that. So I had a few people ask me, how, what about the training side and how are you gonna do that from home? So today I want to cover the training side and in particular training at home during the pandemic and still building muscle with minimal equipment. And to do this, I'm gonna walk you through what we know about the causes of muscle growth. And this can get really sciencey and I kind of want to precurse this with this is as much as what we know at the moment and I'm gonna actually before we start I'm gonna explain a little bit about the research first so there is quite a lot of individual variability in training responses and a person's response to training is way more individual than what a lot of people would think so people often turn their nose up at n equals one, which basically just means when people use anecdotal evidence. So essentially saying, oh, this works for me, so it will work for you, which is essentially half of the fitness industry who follow social media accounts of their favorite genetically gifted Instagram model who could probably have the worst program in the world and still get results or who always had an amazing glutes but now conveniently sells a glute workout and that they kind of have them despite the crappy workout they're selling not because of the crappy workout they're selling so given the obvious drawbacks of this in terms of individual responses it is better to look at research But there are also limitations here. So research does look at bigger groups of people and we can also go one step further and not just look at individual studies, but look, which usually have, I mean, in sports science, sometimes as little as maybe like eight participants, but maybe up to like 50 participants or something. But we can also look at review papers, which bring together the findings of numerous studies. So we've got a better understanding of what's going on. However, the big drawback here is that then you're looking at an average. So you're looking at what happened on average when we put 50 people through this training program or how they responded on average to a certain modality of training, which is clearly also not going to tell you what's going to happen to you as an individual but it will give you a good start point from which to adapt and make tweaks depending on how you respond. So this comes back to, again, what works for you. And ironically, that is like N equals one. This is probably only ironic because that was something that people used to sort of troll other people with when they'd be like, oh, look at my training program. This is how I got these results. And people would just try underneath like, oh, great, N equals one kind of the same with like diets and things like oh this works for me okay well it's not going to work for everyone I think the one thing that we can be quite clear of is that different people need different diets and different people respond to 
the same diet in different ways and different people find certain diets more restricted than others etc etc the same is true for training people have different responses to the same training program so research is great to guide us and give us basic principles but there will always be some adjustments to make um just to make sure that the program is optimal for you so this i guess when when like this is more broad like whenever you're looking at research you should consider generalizability or or essentially can these findings be generalized to other people and the answer is almost always not directly no but they do give us a great insight and when you know what to look for you can decide whether to generalize that or not so for example our um, the participants age we know that older people develop what's known as anabolic resistance and they may require more stimulus to maximize muscle protein synthesis via exercise and via food so and via protein so they might need more volume in their training and they might need more protein to maximize that muscle protein synthesis response because they're less sensitive to that response whereas a younger person might not need to do as much training or eat as much protein to get that same response it's also sometimes when meal timings become more important so after a resistance training bout young people um have experienced an elevation in muscle protein synthesis rates for about 48 hours after in older people this window becomes slightly smaller so maybe there is more importance or there should be more emphasis placed on post-workout nutrition for most for most young-ish people getting in a protein shake within an hour after a workout is probably a sensible thing to do but it's certainly not essential for an older individual, it becomes more important. Other things you might want to look at, what sex was in this study, like was it done on women, was it done on men? Women find it harder to build muscle due to their differing hormones and there are slightly different um, responses in terms of fiber type, making them potentially more predisposed to doing better with higher volume. They It looks like they may have better recovery rates and be able to tolerate more frequent training however this also may be due to the fact that many women lift lighter weights so it could partly be that they're recovering from a reduced stimulus um other things to consider might be exercise experience so the more experienced you are the harder it is going to be for you to progress when you're very new to resistance training you can literally just walk into a gym and do basically anything and you will grow but as you become more conditioned more experienced you need to start thinking about quite smart training to make sure that you are still progressing so having said all of these caveats to like looking at research and how to just have a critical eye about this broadly human physiology will respond in similar ways and as much as I'm saying that you are not an average, so you have to take all these things with a pinch of salt and consider who the study has, like who the participants in the study are and if that's generalizable to you, the likelihood is that you will respond in a very similar way to the average because that's why it is the average. 
so it, it, it's the exact same argument as to why you wouldn't use research to guide practice or to like I guess no one's arguing that you wouldn't use it to guide practice but to say this will definitely happen you can use that exact same argument back on someone to say that well yeah but this is probably what will happen because this is on average what does happen and the average is the average because it's the most common thing that's going to happen and even then I guess you can say you could have what you don't know is that is the average there because most people respond that way or because there's really big hyper responders and people who don't respond at all and the average is somewhere in the middle but actually no one responds in an average way who knows anyway I've gone on a little bit of a uh, little bit of a pointless side note there let's bring it back okay I'm here I'm centered how to create the biggest stimulus for hypertrophy Another side note, I often get asked, and I don't know if it's people just picking up on the way I say things or not, but they're like, is it hypertrophy or hypertrophy? I don't know. I don't think it matters. And I will probably use them interchangeably throughout this. So if that annoys you, I'm sorry. So how to create the biggest stimulus for hypertrophy? Number one, volume via mechanical tension i.e. applying resistance to the muscle. So that could be by lifting weights, that could be by using bands. All of my clients know how much I love bands. Could just be your body weight, any kind of resistance. Number two, lifting at a high enough intensity so that you are creating a hypertrophy response as opposed to endurance adaptations. So if we look at exercise as a spectrum and on the one side we have endurance, and on the other side we have absolute strength you want to be closer to the strength side so these have different adaptations in the muscle one will make the muscle better at endurance basically by priming it for aerobic metabolism and the other will make it better at strength priming it for anaerobic metabolism and more power development and number three potentially training to failure but not too much failure because that will impact number one, which was volume. And again, I'm going to I'm gonna come on to talk more about the last two when we discuss, quote-unquote, optimal rep ranges. But by far the most important thing here is number one, which is mechanical tension. This seems to be the major driver. Metabolic stress and muscle damage have previously been thought to also be important and they may add something and what's quite hard here is that it's very hard to isolate these to see which parts are causing a hypertrophy response so for example when you lift weights you create mechanical tension which causes metabolic stress from the working muscle and also muscle damage so when we lift weights we create small tears in the muscles which we then repair after and that's part of how the muscle grows and it's very hard to decipher which part of that is driving muscular growth and if all parts are necessary because it's hard to to isolate these Um, however we do know that volume of mechanical tension seems to be the primary driver here 
So when people ask about rep ranges, what they should really be thinking about is what's gonna create the most mechanical tension or what's gonna create the highest volume of mechanical tension. And then further to that, that I can recover from. So given that we know that you can build muscle on low reps or high reps and the hypertrophy response is similar if volume is matched, then technically that optimal sets and reps are the ones that you can achieve the most recoverable volume from. So given that, unsurprisingly, there isn't a specific number that you should hit. And a rep range of somewhere between about six and 12 seems to work quite well for most people, which is quite a big variation there. And just to add as well, because some of my clients might be like, oh, but Emma, sometimes you give us like 20 reps and I wanna build muscles, so why? And that's because potentially at slightly higher reps, you can create a, a better buffering capacity from the anaerobic byproducts which accumulate as you lift weights, especially in the higher rep ranges. And this may allow you to then lift heavier weights in your six to 12 rep range as well. You will also potentially recruit different muscle fibers and stimulate different muscle fibers so it's quite good to have some variety there. And there's actually a couple of other reasons where I like to put variety into training programs. So, so for example, some exercises are just better done if they are used in a higher rep range. For example, I'm not gonna have you doing six reps of lateral raises. I might have you doing 20 instead. And especially when you're working out at home, you may have to opt for higher rep ranges and you will still get a similar hypertrophy response, but because you don't have as many weights. The other thing is like, and, and I know this may seem like um, less of a reason, but actually I think it's so important. And that's boredom. Like testing your body in a slightly different way. If I always gave you the exact same rep range, you would be bored out of your mind, especially with home workouts where actually there are quite limited exercises that are gonna give you a big bang for your buck. So if you're doing like a home bodyweight workout, almost every workout is gonna have press-ups, squats, lunges, maybe sit-ups. Like there are certain exercises that you're gonna do quite a lot. Now, if it was always 12 reps of sit-ups, 12 reps of squats like it gets tedious as hell whereas even if it's the same exercises but you're changing up the rep ranges it feels quite different and I'm going to give you an example from this morning so I was doing a little home workout this morning I couldn't really be bothered to do it and I really for some reason I didn't want to do four rounds of a circuit I was like I'm going to do one round and I'll get bored so I was like okay well if you just want to do one round you have to do 100 reps of each exercise before you move on Cool. For some days that would be like, no, don't fancy doing that. I'd rather do a couple of rounds. And other days I'm like, I just want to get it done. That's how I'm going to do it. Now, the outcome in terms of volume of that session is exactly the same. So I was either going to do four rounds of 25 reps or one round of 100 reps each. Right. This, the outcome is the same. 
but your motivation to do it can be quite different because it gets boring. And do you know what's more effective than missing a session because it was too boring to do? Just changing the rep range and getting it done. So I wouldn't underestimate the importance of just making the exercises more enjoyable or like the workout itself more enjoyable or just something slightly different and to keep you motivated. And on this point, this is the reason I change up workouts because there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that you need to quote unquote keep the muscle guessing or that a new workout would offer a benefit. The real reason that coaches change your programming isn't necessarily to make it harder, like maybe now and again that's the case, but let's say you're quite an experienced lifter. The reason we're changing your workouts is so you don't get bored. Like they're all gonna have similar, like if not the same, especially the big lifts and the ones that give you the most bang for your buck, they're all gonna have the same exercises in, but done in a slightly different way, in a different order, maybe some supersets, maybe different rep ranges. That's what keeps you excited and motivated. Now, you would probably get the exact same results if you could keep progressing on a program that was four times 10 reps on this, you know, like on a couple of really decent exercises forever. Like if you could keep progressing that in some way as in lifting more weight, then there's actually no need to change your training program. The basics are the basics because they work. Your muscles know that they're being stimulated, know that they're being used. They don't know that you're doing a split squat as opposed to a squat. And I know that recruits slightly different movement, uh, slightly different muscles there. But my point is like, as long as you're stimulating that muscle, that's how it's told to grow. It doesn't know that you're doing a fancy squat on a BOSU ball, nor does it care. So don't underestimate the importance of variety for just generally enjoying training. And if you enjoy training, you're much more likely to do it consistently. So the other aspect I wanna talk about here with rep ranges, some people look at percentages of one rep max that you should be using. And this is quite interesting. So there was a study that looked at the difference between going to failure at 20% of your one rep max, 40% of your one rep max, 60% or 80%. And obviously there there are different rep ranges there. So at 20% of your one rep max, you're probably gonna do, I don't know, depending on the exercise, let's say you, you manage like 80 odd reps. And at 80% of your one rep max, maybe you only manage six reps. But they looked at the hypertrophy response. So 20, 40, 60, and 80%. All going to failure and then comparing in terms of the hypertrophy response. And it was only the 20% of one rep max that was less effective. And I think it was something close to like 70 to 80 reps they were getting. And that's probably because you're looking more towards like endurance adaptations at that point. However, the authors in this study pointed out that there's a problem with using percentage one rep max because there's a huge variability in the reps that people can manage at a given percentage max. So for example, I might be able to do 100 reps at 20% one rep max, but someone else might only get 20 reps. 
and the hypertrophy response here would likely be quite different, especially if we were both going to failure. So I would be working far more aerobically, whereas they would be working more anaerobically. So given this, I think it's probably more sensible to work with rep ranges. And I would probably, within my own coaching at least, go for sub 30 reps if I was looking for hypertrophy. Like I doubt I would ever have anyone do more than 30 reps. Although now and again, sometimes I do have people doing like a 50 50 rep drop set, which is always fun and just uh, gives you a really great pump. It also seems that if you are lifting in a lower rep range and thus lifting a higher weight, that you don't need to go to failure, but you do need to go to failure on the higher reps to get that same hypertrophy response. And I think this could be to do with motor unit recruitment and larger type two fibers, which are required for the heavier reps, only being recruited towards the end when you're trying when you're close to failure if you're lifting light weights but at higher reps and the reason I'm explaining all of this is that you may not have access to heavy enough weights at home to do say 6 to 12 reps but you might have heavy enough weights to reach failure with 20 to 30 reps And that should give you a very similar, if not the same response in terms of muscle growth. And then one of the obvious questions here is how do you define failure? Because anecdotally, and I'm sure any personal trainers listening to this will have seen the exact same. I can get someone to do 20 reps of their supposedly 10 rep max so I'll have people who are like, oh, I can't do 10 push-ups as they are doing 10 push-ups. So I think you have to be willing to push yourself. And in a way, this isn't such a big problem because the more experienced lifters tend to be able to push themselves more. And the more, well, the newer people to resistance training get excellent results from not really pushing themselves that much to start with anyway because they're very sensitive to this new stimulus of exercise so they may not actually have to reach failure and I'll come on to that in a minute. Another word that gets or two words I guess that get thrown around quite often is progressive overload and the importance of progressive overload to keep building muscle. This just simply means adding to the volume you already have so the same stimulus, if you think about exercise as a stimulus, that same stimulus, your body starts to respond to that and adapt to that. So if you keep just giving it the same stimulus, it doesn't get any better. You have to now challenge it so you're pushing it more. It has to want to adapt to something it can't already do. So if you're very good at push-ups, 10 push-ups isn't going to create much of a stimulus for you. You would have to do more to create the stimulus that 10 push-ups used to do when you were very new to exercise. This is why we need to keep increasing the weight in the gym to keep seeing results. So I've had a lot of questions about creating progressive overload at home when you don't have access to heavier weights, for example. And I think the thing to remember is you can get really sciencey with this. You can try and like create an Excel spreadsheet where you're tracking your total volume and it gets really complicated and confusing, especially when you're using body weight. It's absolutely unnecessary to do that 
a lot of this stuff basically happens naturally. So for example, if you were doing a circuit where you're like, oh yeah, I do 30 seconds of the exercise and then have a 30 second break. And I just repeat that. As you get fitter, you will be able to do more reps within those 30 seconds. And thus you're creating more volume or you can lift a heavier weight or you can have less recovery during that 30 seconds. So say the first time you try and do it, you're like, oh, I managed eight squats, but then I had to have a little break. Then I managed two more before the 30 seconds was done. Okay, cool. Now you're managing 16 without any breaks. Like that is progressively overloading. It doesn't have to look like adding weight to the bar. I also had someone ask me how CrossFitters build muscle given that they don't program this way. And I mean, some some CrossFitters do, so don't come and hate me. But in general, let's say, even if you only did wads, which is their workouts of the day, and you were doing an AMRAP, which is a, God, I'm all in with the CrossFit lingo, as many rounds as possible. If you were lifting heavier or you got more rounds, you are creating progressive overload there. Like it kind of happens naturally as you become fitter. You don't need to have a spreadsheet or be as exact as you might be if you were a strength, like following a a strict strength program, for example. Now we touched on failure and how you can use that as a way to recruit more muscle essentially, stimulate more muscle protein synthesis and potentially build more muscle. But there's a downside to this as well. So you might not want to include failure too often because going to failure in an exercise, say early on in your session, will impact your total volume. And we know that total volume is what the key or or is a is at least what we think the key driver of hypertrophy is. And that's what most of the research lends itself to. So a good example of this is when someone wants to create a lot of, let's say running volume, for example, someone wants to run a marathon. No one runs a marathon by sprinting as hard as you can for 400 meters and then catching their breath and then going again. Like they, you would never finish the marathon and anyone who has tried to sprint 400 meters would know that this would be literally impossible. Equally, if I wanted to create the highest volume on my chest day workout, I wouldn't start it with a max out set of push-ups. And I mean really max out. I would likely do something like three to four sets of however many push-ups I could do with like two to three reps in reserve. So I, I actually don't know who came up with that term, but effectively you're thinking of like, okay, I could probably still do two to three reps before I reached failure. And then maybe at the end of the workout, maybe I would go to failure on an exercise. Maybe I would do dips to failure or push-ups to failure or something. And the benefit of reaching failure is that again, hopefully you're going to recruit these bigger motor units and thus stimulate more muscle fibers. And this is important because if muscle fibers aren't recruited, they can't be stimulated to grow and you recruit your biggest motor units which control more muscle fibers closer to failure. 
And this increased motor unit recruitment is thought to lead to greater muscle growth and strength. And the theory makes sense, but not all research agrees with this. So some studies have found no difference in motor unit recruitment or strength outcomes when training to failure or not. And there's even less evidence for its impact on hypertrophy. And it seems that for individuals who are untrained slash relatively new to exercise, that training to failure is not required for maximal increases in muscle size and strength. As I said before, when you're quite new to exercise, you can almost do anything and you'll get pretty great results. It does seem that some, just some level of fatigue may be enough to sort of saturate the muscle protein synthesis response from training in a group of individuals who are relatively untrained. On the other hand, training to failure may increase muscle size and strength in trained individuals, which is kind of good because they're more likely to be able to push themselves to failure. So if you're untrained, then you probably don't need to lift a failure. And if you are trained, then to get the best results, you probably do need to lift a failure, but you don't want to do it at the expense of total volume. So maybe just towards the end of your session or for sure, if you were doing like four sets on an exercise, cool, do the first three with like a couple of reps in reserve. So you're a couple of reps before failure and then maybe the last set you push yourself towards failure. But again, you want to be careful that that isn't then going to impact the rest of your training session and mean that you're not accruing the same amount of volume. So now you should have some understanding of the drivers of hypertrophy. You can quite clearly see that these can be done at home. So you may want to, I mean, the realization that you don't need to be in this quote unquote hypertrophy rep range. I say quote unquote, because we know that you can build muscle at higher rep ranges gives you a bit more flexibility there. So say you're someone who might reach failure on push-ups at I don't know, 25 reps, excellent. Like that will still create a hypertrophy response. It doesn't need to be in the six to 12 rep range. And there are loads of things you can do to make that exercise harder. You can put on a backpack and fill it with bottles of water. You can use your band as resistance to make that harder. You can do slower eccentric loading. There are loads of different ways you can make the exercise harder and the stress on the muscle harder to create a bigger adaptation and a bigger response. You also now know that going to failure may add an additive effect, especially if you are relatively experienced in resistance training. And you know that the biggest driver here is volume of mechanical tension. And I wanna add something there and just be so, like I wanna emphasize this so much. It's not just volume, it's recoverable volume. And I say this because I know so many people that just think more and more and more training is like exponentially better. And it's not. You will get so much from the first few workouts you do. And on top of that, and even within the workout, you'll get so much from the first few high quality exercises you do. And then on top of that, a lot of people call it like fluff training, as in, it's not really adding that much work. It's not really adding that much more. It's just, because you probably maximally stimulated your muscles, most muscle protein synthesis response already. And you're just adding on more volume, which doesn't massively impact 
the outcome there. And if you're someone who kind of gets stuck in this mindset or you're quite prone to overtraining, I really want you to think about exercise as a stimulus and then you have to respond to that stimulus, i.e. you're creating a stimulus by exercising and then that recovery period, which is rest, nutrition, time, like you need time, even if you tick all the recovery boxes really well, like you're getting in your protein, you're getting in enough calories, you're sleeping well, it still takes time to recover from a session. Like you still need rest days. You will still get the best results from having rest days. As weird as this may sound, you don't build muscles while you're lifting weights. You create a stimulus lifting weights. And then you have to adapt to that stimulus with rest, recovery, fuel, you grow outside of your training sessions. And I've been trying to hammer this message home to clients and just to anyone, but more exercise does not equal more results. Listen to the podcast on perfectionism because this is a, a point I, I really try and hammer home there as well about how much you'll get from your first couple of social media posts, from your first couple of workouts, from you doing... 10,000 steps and how actually the additive of doing more is quite small like the benefit of doing five sessions as opposed to four sessions is quite small and there actually comes a point where it's detrimental and not just in terms of your recovery and your adaptations and how much um, muscle you build for example which is again why I'm like yes volume is important but then some people run away with that and they're like okay so more volume equals more muscle mass no more volume that you can recover from equals more muscle mass so really focus on resting hard as well as training hard and generally most of us who are training more than five times a week would get better results from doing fewer and more intense sessions <clears throat> and then recovering from that and I am the prime example of that. Like I, this was years and years and years ago now, but I'm pretty sure I used to train about mm, 12 sessions a week, like twice a day most days, was living in London, like trained in the morning, trained in the evening, didn't have that many clients, worked at the gym all day. I also used to do a hundred pull-ups a day. Again, not like no real reason, but you know, just excessive amounts of volume. And then I got a job in a lab and my lifestyle changed quite a lot. And I went from training 12 times a week to five times a week. And I looked exactly the same, like exactly the same. Like I, in my head as well, I was like, surely I'm, I'm gonna have a huge impact of the fact that I've less than doubled my training or more than doubled, sorry, more than halved. <laughs> I've more than halved my training volume. Nope, no difference whatsoever. Like I was literally spinning my wheels for half of those sessions. So please bear that in mind, like train smart, train hard, but train smart. And I will leave you with that. I hope this podcast has been useful. I hope it's given you the scientific realization and rationale that you can build muscle at home. You just need to make sure you are creating enough volume, probably 
incorporating hitting failure a couple of times, especially if you're quite an experienced lifter. And don't be afraid to up your reps, even if it's outside what you think is this like optimal hypertrophy range. Because we know that actually the hypertrophy range is much bigger than what most people think. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give it a share. Lots of people have been sharing it and it makes me very, very happy and motivated to do more. And it's lovely to see that I am keeping you company during lockdown. Woo! Oh, and before I forget, the next Commit to Six intake is, well, the waiting list is open. This is by far the best way to work with me and work with my team. And we will be taking people on in mid-February. So get your name down on that waiting list because spaces fill up. This isn't like most group coaching where there's sort of unlimited spacing because there isn't these one-to-one check-ins. We do one-to-one check-ins with all clients, which means that there are only so many that we can actually work with. This is also by far the cheapest way that you will be able to get one-to-one coaching input and coaching check-ins. So get your name down there and I look forward to working with you. Oh, and you have to go to esgfitness.co.uk to do that. That would have helped. There you go.